this era of polarization in politics, how much power does Congress have compared to the presidents and the courts? Is the Republican Congress a meaningful check on President Trump? How well does Congress do at policing ethical lapses of its own members? On episode 17 of the ALB podcast, we talk with Josh Chaffetz, Cornell Law School professor and author of the new book, Congress's Constitution, Legislative Authority and the Separation of Powers. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I'm joined today by Professor Josh Chaffetz, Cornell Law School professor and author of the fantastic new book, Congress's Constitution, Legislative Authority and the Separation of Powers, which was just released by Yale University Press. Welcome to the program, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book. and. Obviously, everyone now is uh, looking at your book through the lens of the Donald Trump presidency and what it means for congressional power. But I'm guessing that uh, you started this book before that presidency. And um, I, I saw you got a, an Alyssa Milano endorsement on Twitter. Uh, so uh, and, and I should say that Yale Press, who publishes both of our books, mercifully lowered the price of your book. So so people can actually buy it, which I think is great. Um, but I wanted to start um, uh, not by talking about Donald Trump, although we'll get to that, because your book is really a broad historical and conceptual overview of the powers of Congress, tracing it back to their uh, English roots all the way up to modern day controversies. Uh, and, and so I thought maybe we'd just start with a basic point that you make in your book, distinguishing between what you call Congress's hard and soft powers. So maybe you could explain what those are. Or, um, What's in the toolbox that Congress has, and, and, and what does it mean to distinguish between these hard and soft powers? Sure. Well, I, should, I guess I should start by saying that um, uh, in some sense what I was interested in as sort of the, the big picture of the book is the things that Congress does when it's not actually passing laws. Um, and, and the reason that's what I'm interested in is because I'm interested in sort of this question of, of how Congress goes about checking the other branches and especially uh, especially the presidency, um, and you know, passing laws is a really uh, uh, bad way to to check the presidency because, of course, uh, the Constitution has the presentment requirement, and so uh, president can veto laws that are sort of primarily aimed at checking him. So I'm interested in sort of all the other things that Congress does, um, and as you say, I, I divide them into these two sort of broad categories of hard and soft powers, and I, I borrow that terminology. Um, from the international relations literature, and in particular from uh, Joseph Nye, who's talked about uh, you know American power in the world as as sort of being uh, uh, broadly describable as either hard power on the one hand and hard power sort of military power or throwing our economic might around, um, sort of being able to to coerce other countries to do what we want, uh, and then soft power, which is um, uh, sort of being able to attract other countries uh, to sort of show to to make them want to uh, you know emulate our values or our culture or things like that. So I thought this would be a sort of nice uh, uh, framework, broadly speaking, for thinking about Congress's powers vis-a-vis -vis the other branches. So when I talk about hard powers, I'm talking about things that are a little bit more coercive. Um, the power of the purse, and in particular, the power to uh, shut down the government or to, to shut down part of the government or to zero out a program or even a salary. Um, uh, what I call the personnel power. So that's um, uh, everything from uh, confirmation or refusal to confirm uh, presidential nominees to impeachment. 
Um, uh, and uh, the, the contempt power, right? that is the ability to punish people who don't cooperate with congressional subpoenas or who refuse to answer questions when they're testifying before Congress. So I think of those as the more coercive, sort of harder powers. Um, and then I, uh, I'm interested in softer powers as well, that is things that the houses of Congress do that are meant to sort of build public support. Um, so this is things like uh, congressional ethics enforcement, keeping their own houses in order, showing that they're sort of worthy of public trust in that regard. Um, the speech or debate protection, so being able to sort of say things to the public without uh, worry, without having to worry about being called to answer, you know, by the executive or in front of the courts, uh, which allows them to do things like um, uh, uh, potentially even leaking state secrets uh, uh, in ways that are calculated to build support for Congress as an institution, uh, and then things like capacity building, um, uh, developing committees, uh, building congressional staff, again in ways that are uh, uh, meant to allow it to. Uh, uh, perform its functions better, to interact better with the public uh, in ways that sort of have a knock-on effect of strengthening their hand uh, uh, in conflicts with the other branches. So those are what I think of as the sort of suite of soft powers. Uh, although I, I, I want to be clear, and I say this uh, in the book, that I don't think of these as two sort of analytically distinct categories that sort of never, uh, 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 you know, never the twain shall meet or anything like that. I think of them as sort of two ends of a spectrum uh, and as sort of being useful analytically for dividing up the book, but not things where I would want to say there's a clear dividing line between hard powers on the one hand and soft powers on the other. Well, I mean, this book is so fundamentally about separation of powers. And uh, even before you got to it in your book, uh, it really stands in contrast with the work of people like Daryl Levinson and Rick Pildes, hmm. who say if you're, if you're trying to understand modern American politics and division of power, it's all about political parties, the separation of parties, not powers. Aren't they right, given the evidence, say, from if we look at the Obama administration's time, uh, that it's really the Democrats versus the Republicans, and a lot gets done when it's united government, and a lot gets blocked when it's divided government. So, so what's the case that separation of powers remains a useful lens with which to view what's going on in current American politics? Yes, yeah, so I should say, I, I mean, I view uh, uh, the Levinson and Pildes uh, uh, article and then the sort of subsequent uh, development of literature around that as being an incredibly useful intervention. Um, I think parties are really important to talking about the separation of powers. And I talk, you know, throughout the book, parties are, uh, you know, play a significant uh, role and the, and the partisan affiliations of various actors play a significant role. Um, where I disagree with the sort of Levinson and Pildes argument is that I think they underplay uh, the, the, the ways in which constitutional structure interacts with uh, partisan influences. They talk about um, uh, unified government as being uh, essentially akin to uh, you know, a Westminster-style system, um, uh, and they talk about divided government uh, as being sort of uh, nothing but obstruction, nothing but sort of checks. Um, and I think the, the story is, is, is both a lot more complicated than that, um, because I, don't, I think there are all kinds of ways in which uh, uh, party loyalty is, um, uh, is is undermined or is, or is sort of far from absolute in the American system. There are various ways that I talk about uh, in Chapter 2 in which uh, I think members of Congress do actually care about their institution, not just about their parties. Um, but, but perhaps sort of more importantly than that, um, the, the, our regime of separated power creates all of these different footholds in the federal government uh, 
from which members of different parties can check one another. Right? So there's an important, you know, one of the important dis differences between the American system and sort of the, the standard view of the Westminster system, right, is that in the Westminster system, if you win a, a, a plurality of the votes in a majority of the constituencies for the House of Commons, you run the entire government uh, and, and uh, you know, what the cabinet wants and at this point in time what the prime minister wants, uh, 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 she gets, assuming she controls uh, a majority. Um, the American system is, is quite different because it creates these different institutions with different constituencies, with different electoral time frames, uh, each of which has significant powers and tools available to it. Right, so the 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 structuring of our system of separated powers means that uh, uh, you're really unlikely to have uh, unified government, especially sort of strongly unified government. Right, so even now with Republicans in control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency, you see pushback from sort of other sites of institutional power, whether that's uh, from uh, the states in certain contexts, whether that's from the judiciary in certain contexts, um, because this regime of separated powers gives lots of different people, lots of different places from which they can exercise power. And the odds that you're going to have a really disciplined party that manages to capture all of those levers of power simultaneously uh, is incredibly small. So I don't so much uh, disagree with Levinson and Pildes as I want to sort of complicate their story. I want to say it's not separation of parties, not powers. It's both. And the, and the interaction effects between them is actually what I find most interesting. Well, let's put that a little bit to the test in looking at the current uh, administration. Uh, obviously, sure. we're seeing the judiciary serve as a check on Trump. Think of the travel ban cases, which right. are working their way up to the Supreme Court. Um, do you think that Congress so far has been a meaningful check on Trump's power um, uh, through the either through the power to investigate or or in any other way? Because you know, lots of people were saying, well, don't, don't worry about Trump, uh, even if he's somewhat of a loose cannon. You've got Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell there to uh, keep things in check. What, what's your view of how things are going so far? So my view is that so far Congress's record is mixed, which is um, sort of a, a very much what I'd expect when you have uh, what, you know, we're, we're only – uh, uh, you know, less than six months into a new administration, about five months into a new administration, um, and you know, one party sort of for the uh, you know the Republican Party for the first time uh, in a while uh, uh, sort of does control House, Senate, and presidency. I wouldn't expect massive amounts of resistance to the president to sort of bubble up immediately in that context. Um, that said, given how uh, low uh, Trump's approval ratings are and the fact that they don't seem to show any indication of, of going up, um, I would expect to see some pushback uh, and, and sort of growing amounts of pushback. And I think that's what we've seen so far. Um, uh, so, you know, there's been sort of uh, almost no legislative agenda uh, getting through Congress thus far of which to speak. Um, now, that may change with the health care bill. It may not. Um, but uh, uh, even if health care were to pass, um, uh, uh, if, if not much else passes uh, over the first sort of year of the Trump presidency or even sort of makes significant moves through committee, uh, that would be a fairly meager record given how much uh, uh, power Republicans have right now. Um, I also think that it's been the, the, the investigative record has been very interesting. You know, there, there are four uh, committees currently conducting investigations into uh, the Trump campaign and Trump administration and its ties and their ties with Russia. Um, 
And uh, those committees to do those investigations have required Republican buy-in. Um, and, and those committees have produced a fair amount of, of – of, uh, uh, you know, they haven't, they haven't resulted in sort of concrete actions being taken by the committees or the chambers yet, but they have been ba- very bad for the Trump administration. You think about sort of the explosive headlines that have come out of these moments with, you know, Comey, while he was still director of the FBI, testifying in open session before the House Intelligence Committee, or McCabe testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, and then Comey again testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee after he'd been fired. Um, the mere fact that they were testifying, that they were testifying in open session, that required Republicans Republicans on the committee to agree to do that. And the headlines that have come out of each of those incidents have been really bad for the Trump administration. So I think that's an sort of important way in which um, uh, this Congress is playing some role in checking the Trump administration. Um, I don't want to sound like a cheerleader for this Congress. There's certainly more that it could do. And as I said, if Trump's approval numbers stay low, if members of both houses start to perceive uh, that their reelection prospects in uh, uh, 2018 and beyond are really significantly threatened uh, by the sort of ongoing unpopularity of the Trump administration. I think we'll see that pushback start to ramp up. Um, but, you know, I, I would caution patience. None of these things happen quickly. We tend to forget that it was uh, over two years from the Watergate break-in uh, to Nixon's resignation. Um, it, it's it's sort of not clear. And that was with Democrats in control of both chambers of Congress. Uh, so it's it's not clear why we would expect things to be moving sort of much more quickly than they are today. I'm speaking with Josh Chaffetz, who's the author of the new book, Congress's Constitution, which you can find, order at Amazon or Yale University Press, or even better, if you still have an independent bookstore, that would be a great place to order this book. Uh, he's also a professor at Cornell Law School and co-author of one of the very best casebooks in any subject, the casebook on legislation uh, and regulation that started as the Eskridge Fricky book and uh, now has very great for the book brought along uh, Josh. Uh, Thank you. So um, with so much focus these days on the interaction between the legislative and executive branches, I was interested to see uh, your talk about legislative judicial interactions. I- I've done a little work on that, which, which you nicely, uh, very kindly cite in the book on co- when Congress overrides Supreme Court statutory interpretations. Um, but I thought what was most interesting in this regard in your book was your discussion of when it's appropriate for Congress to go after judges and their opinions. Uh, could you lay out your views on this? And also, you know, whether or not you think this runs the risk of further politicizing the judiciary. I'm just imagining Judge Reinhardt appearing before the uh, House Judiciary Committee to answer for his opinions. And I'm wondering if that would actually do anyone any good. Uh, well, so my view is that the judiciary is political. And I, and I mean, when I, uh, you, when I say political, I mean it in a sort of capacious sense. I, I want to distinguish between political on the one hand and partisan on the other. Partisanship is one form of politics, but not all politics is partisan. Um, so um, uh, I, you know, I think judges are necessarily political because they are making uh, decisions that have large-scale ramifications for sort of how we lead our collective life together. Uh, in my view, that is what that that is basically the definition of political activity. Um, so they are political. They're frequently partisan as well. I, you know, I certainly don't think that judges are, um, uh, by and large, nonpartisan. Um, their their partisanship sort of 
shows up in different ways than partisanship in the other branches. Um, you know, not, differently cited political actors are always going to have different constraints uh, as well as different powers, and so their their interactions are going to to look different. Um, but I don't think there's anything special about judges that should insulate them from being uh, questioned about the sort of necessarily inevitably political decisions that they render. They have certain uh, protections, right? They can't um, uh, be summarily dismissed from their job. Right? It's very hard to get rid of a, a federal judge. They can't have their salary diminished uh, uh, during their time in office. Um, they uh, can't have final judgments uh, 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 overturned by uh, by legislation. Right? So there are various protections for their roles, but I don't think there is a sort of free-floating idea of judicial independence that that um, uh, in the Constitution. I think judges are meant to be independent in some ways and dependent in others. Um, so I just don't see a problem with uh, uh, calling judges before Congress and asking them to explain the sort of political decisions that they've made with the understanding that there are certain that, that, that Congress's uh, ability to actually respond to those decisions might be limited. Um, uh, but I, I, I guess um, I don't see what's what's necessarily wrong with that. And And part of what motivates that is that there are times when judges behave in uh, sort of especially partisan ways, um, that makes me sort of think, why should we allow them to do that while while insulating them uh, from the kind of blowback that other partisan actors receive as a on a on a regular basis? So I was thinking about um, when the first Affordable Care Act was pending, and there was a, a, a conservative panel of the Fifth Circuit, conservative even for the Fifth Circuit, uh, hearing arguments in a related Affordable Care Act case, uh, and Obama said at a press conference, um, you know, I, I don't think the um, uh, I don't think the Affordable Care Act is, is unconstitutional, and I don't think the Supreme Court should strike it down. And then these three judges, sua sponte, order the attorney general to file supplemental briefing on the power of judicial review and the president's um, uh, views on judicial review, basically giving the attorney general a homework assignment meant to sort of thumb their nose at the president. And my view is if judges are going to be doing things like that, I don't see what's wrong with treating them uh, like we treat other political actors. They have... Um, uh, uh, you know, they're 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 big boys and girls. They can they can look after their own institutional prerogatives, and I'm not particularly concerned about seeing them uh, sort of have to answer questions publicly. Uh, one area that your book discusses is Congress's power to police its own members mm -hmm. as to ethical violations and, and and some violations going into illegality. Do you think Congress has done a good job historically? Do you think it's doing a good job now? I'm thinking. Um, uh, in part of the speech or debate clause defenses that have been raised in connection with corruption proceedings, such as those of uh, Representative William Jefferson and Robert oh. uh, Menendez, a senator from New Jersey, who's apparently going to go to trial later this year. Uh, do you think, do you think uh, things are working in that regard? No, I don't. Um, uh, you know, Congress has done uh, a, a pretty bad job of, of policing uh, its own members. I think that's true broadly over the sweep of American history. But I think that's even more true um, starting in about the sort of second half of the 20th century. Um, and I think it's related to the ways in which the other branches stepped in and sort of actively poached some of that power. Um, so you don't get um, members of Congress 
prosecuted by the executive branch before the courts, uh, really until the, the early 20th century. The, the, the first uh, uh, case I can find of a member of Congress uh, being prosecuted before the federal judiciary for anything related to uh, his official duties uh, comes from the, uh, a couple cases from, from uh, the, the first decade of the 20th century. Um, uh, you know, before that, it was understood that it would uh, be problematic, that it would be improper for um, uh, for the executive to, to to prosecute them, and therefore that it was the responsibility of their houses to punish them uh, for for this kind of behavior if anyone was going to do it. And indeed, those first two prosecutions at the very beginning of the 20th century, in both cases, the uh, the the members of Congress. Um, make the argument that they are being persecuted by President Roosevelt uh, for their opposition to his policies. Um, uh, and, and, and a large number of people uh, believe them. So actually one of them serves time in Leavenworth, and when he's released from Leavenworth, he comes home to his, uh, to his hometown to uh, uh, literally a hero's welcome. He gives a speech to a sold-out arena where he just excoriates Teddy Roosevelt, says, you know, he came after me because I was uh, opposed uh, to his, his uh, uh, trade policy, um, uh, and really that's all this was. And that kind of worry, right, both the, the worry that um, presidents would actually do that, but also the related worry that even if the president was going after someone because they really were a crook, that, that it would look like they were doing it for political reasons. I think point to the, the wisdom of leaving these decisions as much as possible in the hands of the houses of Congress. But as you progress through the 20th century, the Department of Justice takes on more and more responsibility uh, for policing members of Congress. Um, they increasingly are trying uh, uh, members before uh, before federal courts uh, and Congress, uh, both houses of Congress, for I think understandable uh, reasons, although unfortunate ones, um, are pretty happy to abdicate this power. Uh, so they, uh, you know, they start adopting rules that, uh, well, we're actually going to hold our investigations in abeyance. Uh, while criminal proceedings are pending against any member because we wouldn't want to interfere with the criminal proceedings. And in my view, that's that's backwards. Um, the, if, if anything, it's the criminal proceedings that would be interfering with the congressional investigation because it's first and foremost Congress's job, uh, each House of Congress's job, to, to, um, uh, to keep its members in line. Um, and as I said sort of right at the beginning, I think this could be a significant source of soft power for members. Um, there's there's uh, a good amount of literature in political science showing that um, uh, scandals, uh, sort of widely publicized congressional scandals, hurt not only those members uh, who are caught up in the scandal, uh, but frequently um, everyone from that member's party, uh, and sometimes even uh, sort of every incumbent in the in the chamber as a whole. Uh, so it's in their both. Uh, individual, partisan, and institutional interests, in some sense, to um, to actually police their own members. Uh, but it's also deeply distasteful, and so you know, to to sort of go after someone you work with closely on a on a regular basis. So I can see why it is that it doesn't, uh, you know, why abdicating that power looks attractive to them, and that's largely what's happened. I want to close by just asking you. Um... The sense I get from reading the book is that you're kind of a, a closet congressional supremacist. Uh, so maybe disabuse me of that. Uh, and if I'm if I'm right about that, um, uh, or even if I'm not, uh, and and you're speaking to congressional supremacists, what would you advise Congress to do today to flex its muscles? You know, either through the use of hard and soft power. What, what would you What would you say that Congress could do to increase its 
power vis-a-vis -vis the other branches. Right. So uh, to, to the first point, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a congressional supremacist exactly. I'm I'm uh, a fan of Congress as an institution. Um, you know, the first part of the book is sort of um, broad-based separation of powers theory, and the sort of uh, uh, nub of that theory is that the uh, uh, powers that any branch uh, has at any given point in time aren't sort of static and they aren't determined uh, you know, for all time by constitutional text or something like that, but they're, they're constantly in the process of being worked out through constitutional politics. Um, so my view is that it's important that Congress be a vibrant player in these constitutional politics. Um, uh, but it's also important that the other branches be vibrant players in, in constitutional politics and, and that sort of uh, uh, that friction between them, sometimes that outright hostility between them uh, sort of gives rise to the governing system that, that we have. Um, so I would say that, you know, at various points in time, Congress has exercised sort of various of its powers in ways that tend to enhance its authority and and uh, others in ways that tend to diminish its authority. So, uh, you know, we were just talking about their uh, um, uh, power to discipline their own members. And I think that, especially in recent years, has been used in a way that tends to diminish the authority of the chambers. So one piece of advice I would give uh, to the houses is to be more proactive about policing members' ethics. Um, uh, you know, I was um, I was relieved at the beginning of this Congress when the House looked like it might do away with the Office of Government Ethics. I think the Office of Government Ethics in the House is actually uh, a step in the right direction. It's it's a step that actually uh, promotes um, uh, uh, the House of Representatives' use of its disciplinary powers against its members. Uh, and I was relieved that it wound up keeping it. Um, I thought it was a sort of unnecessary self-inflicted wound that they even publicly debated doing away with it. Um, so I would advise sort of more things like the Office of Government Ethics to demonstrate trustworthiness. Um, I would advocate sort of um, being attentive to the surrounding politics, being willing to stand up to a president, even a president of your own party, uh, when you have the politics uh, on your side. I think we're going to see some of that actually from uh, Republicans, especially Republicans in the Senate. Um, uh, over the next year or two, if uh, again, if Trump's uh, uh, approval numbers stay low, I think we're going to see members sort of making the calculation that, hey, we can sort of play the hero here um, uh, if we uh, if we stand up to an unpopular president of our own party. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think there's advice you can give in the abstract because uh, one of the sort of themes of the book is that. Um, uh, politics doesn't happen in the abstract, that um, the only way to sort of understand what's going on in politics is to take a really sort of deeply contextualized look at any given decision. So um, uh, it would certainly be a mistake to say, well, always sort of adopt a maximally combative attitude towards the president or something like that. It has to be understood in terms of, well, what is your standing relative to the president? Sort of what levers of power do you control? And where, what is the public looking for? Where, um, uh, uh, where do they want you to push back? And where are they actually supportive of the of the president's agenda? Um, so, sort of thinking in those terms, uh, I think uh, members can sort of try to figure out what kinds of actions they want to take that will enhance their own standing. Um, uh, as I said, it's not necessarily a question that can be answered sort of in the abstract uh, for them. Wow, fascinating discussion, fantastic book, J Josh uh, Chaffetz. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law. 
but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassen. Goodbye.